Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. This is a crowd podcast. There's an old Indian folktale, I'm sure you've heard it, called The Blind Men and the Elephant. In it, six blind men, all from the same village, go to the palace to meet an elephant for the very first time. The first blind man touches the side of the great beast and declares, an elephant is like a wall. Another feels the animal's long, muscular trunk and says, no, no, an elephant is like a giant snake. The third blind man, touching the animal's enormous ear, says, You're both wrong. An elephant is like a leathery fan. Yet another, with their hands on the elephant's tusk, decides this animal is as sharp and deadly as a spear. The fifth blind man, holding the elephant's leg, announces, An elephant is exactly like a tree trunk. Finally, The sixth blind man grabs the elephant's tail and declares, you are all wrong. An elephant is like a rope. Looking back, I think that story is a pretty good description of what it was like to be involved in the Haditha investigation. Each of us, on both sides of the case, touched only part of it, even though we thought we had access to the whole thing. And like the blind men in that parable, some of us didn't think to look elsewhere for more evidence. We only saw what was in front of us. But then there were those in this investigation who were actively kept from finding the truth. In the beginning with Haditha, when we were tackling this investigation and getting set to tackle the reconstruction, we had the resources, we had the asset, we had the travel, we had the support. Whatever we needed, Haditha was the priority. And you felt that excitement and that rush at being at the cusp of that and having a say in that and having a part of it. This is former NCIS Special Agent Michael Maloney. Mike, as you almost certainly know by now, or at least you should, was the lead forensic consultant in the Haditha investigation. The person responsible for taking all the evidence collected in House 2 and determining exactly what happened. For the first two or three months, everything was fine. But after that, things began to change. And I was going to say they changed slowly, but they didn't. They changed rather rapidly. Things got worse, and they got dramatically worse. My name is Michael Epstein, and you're listening to my podcast about the longest, most expensive criminal investigation in U.S. military history. 
Murder in House 2. Episode 6. Stippling. For a podcast where you can't actually see anything, I've spent a fair amount of time talking about the pictures of the back bedroom taken in House 2. The ones that show five children and two women shot on or near their mother's bed. There's a reason for this, even if at times it may have seemed sensational or voyeuristic. It's because buried within those photographs are clues to the crime and who committed it. If you know how to read the photographs, like Mike Maloney and his partner Tom Brady do, you can see things others might miss. But sometimes the clues are elusive. Sometimes even the most careful examination won't rest them free. That is what happened in one section of one photograph and why Mike Maloney decided further experimentation was needed. Why does the ear on that little girl take at your attention, and what do you try to do? I think her, uh, I think we identified her as Aisha. Aisha, that is correct. Aisha, she's curled up over the top of Momad on the bed, and the side of her face, her profile is showing. Aisha Yunus Salim Rasif was three years old on the morning of 19 November 2005. Like her brothers and sisters, Aisha was murdered in the back bedroom of House 2. Her death certificate, issued by the local hospital, states that she was shot in the chest and stomach. But Special Agent Maloney's forensic analysis, based on the photographs taken by Andrew Wright, also found there was evidence of blood behind and inside Aisha's right ear. Here's what Mike wrote in his blood spatter analysis. There was one flow of blood behind her ear and a second flow of blood that runs down and across her cheek. In other words, it seemed to Mike Maloney that Aisha had been shot in the head, maybe more than once. If you look at her ear under magnification, it looks as if there might be a bullet hole in her actual ear, in the structure of the ear itself. If you then look at the blood staining that's on her head, She has a blood flow that comes down behind her ear and down her neck. That's not natural for the position she's in. You can see very, very wet spots up here where it looks as if there's another gunshot within the hair. So I looked at that and I wondered, is this a separate gunshot? And when I looked at it, it appeared to me that there was stippling around it. They had a specific morphology to them, a specific shape. That's Mike's partner, Tom Brady. Under magnification on the photographs, there was small deposits on the ear that were dark, and it appeared that they were not blood, that there may have been gunpowder. In his forensic report, Mike Maloney speculated that there might be stippling in Aisha's ear. But he left that question unanswered. Here's what he wrote. Aisha's ear has apparent stippling. The full extent of the stippling dispersion may be hidden within her hair. Now, if you're not a forensic consultant, and who among us really is, it's easy to read past that line, to think nothing of it. I certainly did. I had never heard the word stippling, and I had no idea what it meant or implied. Like the old men in the parable, I was blind to that clue, and as a result, couldn't see the totality of what had happened in that room. But Mike Maloney and Tom Brady were drawn to that image because they knew if there was stippling in that little girl's ear, well, it would change everything. 
So if there was stippling on her ear and she's at the head of the bed, that indicates that the weapon was extended out over the bed when it was fired, most likely. This isn't standing at the foot of the bed, shooting across the bed anymore. This is moving the weapon closer to a target and shooting that target. Reaching over the bed. Depending upon what that distance would end up being, and I thought that we needed to do a series of tests to determine that. Because if it's 18 inches, then suddenly the muzzle of the weapon is this far from that little girl's ear when it's discharged. You would have to extend the weapon over the bed and very deliberately point it at the side of the girl's head. I mean, you're 18 inches away. That's a well-aimed shot from there. Reminiscent of execution-style shooting. You're executing a little girl. Not dead yet, and you want to make sure they're dead. I don't know what the circumstances is, but you're firing a bullet into a little girl's head at a very close distance. You're not standing across the room shooting, and she happens to be movement in the haze. There's no fog of war at that point. There's clarity. So when a gun is fired, different things are shot out of the muzzle along with the bullet. There's gas, there's soot, there's burned and unburned gunpowder particles. Stippling occurs when a rifle or pistol is fired at close enough range for those gunpowder particles to become lodged within the skin, effectively tattooing it. Each type of gun creates its own distinct stippling pattern, depending on the caliber of the weapon and the distance from which it was fired. Usually, it has to be somewhere between 6 and 18 inches away, any further, and there isn't stippling. So, if you know what a stippling pattern looks like, say, from a photograph, you can create a test or a protocol to determine the weapon and its distance from the victim when it was fired which is exactly what Special Agents Maloney and Brady proposed to do with the stippling pattern they thought they saw in Aisha's ear. This is the early stages. We're still getting everything we want. I put together a research protocol because you have to validate these things. I've done it on many cases. We do original experimentation to prove points. Uh, I actually started with it. I got the research protocol through and I started by fabricating a child's ear and using photographs of the victim, the victim's ear, other measurements and biometric measurements of ear, everything from standoff distance and everything else from the head. We took those to a military specialist. To determine what? To build me ears. Because eventually, I've got to take a similar weapon with the same type of ammunition, and I have to fire a series of shots moving back. And I have to measure that pattern. Where does the stippling stop? Where does it start? So I have to manufacture that ear. I have to place it on a mannequin's head, put it in the right position, then do a series of shots getting increasingly further away to determine, can I determine what that muzzle distance is? Stippling was yet another clue that Mendoza, Tatum, and even Frank were not telling the truth, or at least not the whole truth and nothing but the truth about House 2. Now, I think it's important to note if Maloney's test proved there was stippling in Aisha's ear, it would not have refuted his previous findings. Specifically, that someone stood at the foot of the bed, sighted targets, and fired across it from right to left. And that that someone was Frank Wooderich. But it would have added key details, essential details, to what happened in that bedroom. 
Because in Mike's words, if there was stippling in Aisha's ear, then this was no longer fog of war or shooting in the haze or firing in support of another Marine. This was the execution of a three-year-old girl. But there was another factor Mike Maloney had to consider before he ran his stippling test. Every Marine in the initial fire team, Stephen Tatum, Umberto Mendoza, Hector Salinas, Frank Wooderich, all carried a long gun, a rifle, specifically an M4, which is an updated version of the M16. And those rifles, as we learned in the last episode, were harnessed to each Marine by a sling. Would somebody take an M16 or an M4 and, and do that? Because how does that, how do you do that with the big rifle? It very well could have resulted in that M4 having to be extended out over the bed for the shot. The problem, as you know, is the M4 has a sling system. It's not as if you can hold it out here or hold it up here. You have limited movement because it's slung to your body. Again, that sling system Mike is talking about is the same one Mendoza testified he used when he opened the door to that very bedroom. Aisha was in the middle of the bed, lying next to her mother and one of her sisters. Her head was near the headboard. How could there be stippling in Aisha's ear if the Marine who fired from the foot of the bed had his M4 slung to his chest? How could he extend it out that far? Most likely, he couldn't. But that didn't mean Mike Maloney was wrong about the stippling pattern he thought he saw in Aisha's ear. Because in another photograph also taken by Andrew Wright, there was evidence of a second weapon present in the bedroom. Over by the wall in the curtains, remember where we have the girl on her hands and knees, she's been shot and she's down. Right at her feet by the curtains, there's a shell case. There's a bullet case. And it's not from an M4, it's not from an AK-47. It's a pistol round. I can't see its caliber or anything else from the photographs, but it's not consistent with the long guns that are in there. It comes from a pistol. The only pistol I know being deployed by this team is they would have a nine millimeter. A nine millimeter pistol. I cannot tell you how many times I looked at that photograph and missed the nine millimeter shell case Mike Maloney is talking about. Dozens, maybe hundreds of times. I simply did not see it. In fact, no one on Frank's defense team saw it. At least, not at first. Eventually, we discovered it, but much later and independently from Mike Maloney. But that's a different story for a different episode. Right now, we were blind to that clue. The only one who saw it, who wanted forensically to explain its presence, was Mike Maloney. And there were some very, very powerful people who were not happy about that fact. Were you allowed to do the experiments? Yes, yes. I started the experiments. I got to the point of shooting. I had the ears fabricated. I had the uh, mannequin heads. And I was getting ready to do the shooting. But then I was told to stop all work on that, that the uh, authority for that experiment had been withdrawn by our headquarters. Excuse me? I was told to stop work on it. Mike got a phone call from one of our superiors, and I believe it was said, don't, don't do the test. Tom Brady again. I don't recall why. It was just, don't do it. Um, we're asking you not to do it. We're telling you not to do it. I argued a little bit, but I was told that this is not one I want to argue, that it's done. No idea who was driving that train. 
The impression was clearly given to me that it was coming through prosecution. I don't have firsthand knowledge of that, but I was told that this experiment's not going to be done. Mike was, I think he was just bullshit. He just was, he just was beside himself. And uh, I don't think he put me on speaker, but I, I may have stood up and got away from the desk. I thought the phone was going to go off. Being the ethical man he was, I mean, and is, I mean, he was very disturbed by that. And we were both taken back by this because it's, it's reconstruction, it's inquiry, it's objective. The protocol was approved and we thought it could answer a question about shooter position. Why wouldn't they want to know that? I have no idea. Unless knowing it is not a good thing. Unless it did not fit their theory or something they were moving forward with. I was told in very unambiguous terms that this was not a fight I wanted to fight, that I was done with this experiment, move on. And uh, the person that told it to me, I respect them a great deal. The way it was worded, it was quite clear that this is something I didn't want to push. But have you ever heard of a protocol having been approved and, and then in a case as important as this being shut down? Well, I've never worked a case this big, so the answer would be no on that. But the reasons for a protocol being shut down, I, I guess, is moot because it was approved. But have you ever heard of having been approved and then subsequently being shut down? Not in my experience. Not in any cases that I've suggested experimentation or, or, you know, many cases don't demand further experimentation. No, fair enough. But in this moment, it's approved. And then that approval is taken away. Has that ever happened in your long history at NCIS? No, no. I mean, this was a first, yeah. When Mike and Tom first told me this story, I was incredulous. Angry, actually. Here was a forensic test that could have brought clarity, that could have given a more complete picture of what happened in the back bedroom of House 2. And the government shut it down over objections from their own forensic experts. But the aborted stippling test wasn't the only instance of someone trying to corrupt Mike Maloney's findings. In fact, it wasn't even the worst. In your opinion, then, is there, is there tension about that decision? Is there back and forth? Are you privy to an internal moment where somebody says, Special Agent Maloney, be quiet? I mean, is it, is it ever that blatant or naked? It does get that blatant, unfortunately. It comes to the point where I receive a um, email from one of the supervisors through our headquarters that basically, and I'm back in Okinawa, I remember opening it and reading it, and um, it basically uh, told me that my testimony was not reflecting the views of the Marine Corps and that NCIS had adopted the Marine Corps' views and would support them. And I sat there incredulous looking at this. I've never, first off, it's not ethical. It's someone attempting to change or to alter my testimony in a criminal manner. Telling you. And it's a supervisor. It's someone that, and it's not just one up from me, it's several up from me. So this is someone that's telling me, get on board. We have a, we have chosen a direction and our direction mirrors the Marine Corps and yours does not. And at that point, I was upset, I was angry. He's telling you to lie. Not in so many words, he's telling me to change my opinion. We'll telling, leave it at that. He's telling you to change the nature of your testimony. He's telling me to change the nature of my testimony so that it's congruent with the Marine Corps theory of facts in the case. 
I'm going to say that's lying, but that's okay. To perjure yourself on the stand. Certainly, if I were to do that, it would have been perjury because it's not what I believed or knew to be true. How do you respond? I picked up the phone and called him. And I think I had some choice words for him. And I basically said, are, are you an idiot? What in the world are you doing? You're chain telling me in written communication. This is an email. It exists. It's, it's a written electronic communication. If you're going to do something this lame-brained, at least call me over the phone and do it verbally. I said, you know better than this. And you know better than to try to get me to change my opinion. Do you start to professionally suffer? Yes. Yeah. Um, clearly fallen out of favor uh, with the head office, with, uh, with NCIS, not seen as a team player anymore not seen as someone that's advancing NCIS is going, seen as a troublemaker. Yeah, I'm, I'm viewed as a troublemaker at this point. And uh, it's a point in my career where I can survive that. I'm pretty darn senior. But um, it's also quite clear that any aspirations, uh, aspirations beyond Haditha and moving forward are, are going to meet some significant resistance unless I can overcome, uh, overcome this uh, Haditha's going to be a career-ender for you. Uh, Haditha is going to be a career-ender unless I get on board. Spoiler alert. Mike Maloney never gets on board. So, I filed for divorce last week. He's being served today. In the next episode, Frank Wooderich's marriage falls apart. Words were exchanged. I said some pretty hurtful things. I said maybe what they were saying about him was right. Maybe he wouldn't have, like, think twice about doing what he did in Iraq. And then I, I called back and I apologized for saying that. But I was so mad at him. So I regret bringing that into it, yeah. But um, he honestly is not, like, the same person I used to know. Like, really, he's just changed so much. If you want more Murder in-house 2, join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter where we'll be posting videos of what you've just heard, as well as photographs and copies of original investigative documents. Just search for Murder in-House 2. This is a Crowd Network podcast in association with Buccaneer Media and the Dakota Group. The podcast was produced by Steve Jones and edited by Ed Enniot, with additional editing by Ed Barteski Jr. and R.A. Fetty. Executive producers for Crowd Network are Mike Carr and Mike Pearls, and for Buccaneer Media, Tony Wood and Richard Tulkhart. Original music by Joel Goodman, with additional tracks from BMG Production Music. Finally, if you'd like another podcast recommendation, check out a Crowd Network original called The Mentor, where businessman Rick Lewis tries to change the lives of three young people in just 12 weeks. 2020 has been a crappy year for most of us. But Rick and the Mentor Podcast are at least trying to end it with some good news. Give it a listen. Just search for The Mentor in your podcasting app. I'm Michael Epstein. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. This is Michael, and I don't know about you, but sometimes life gets so busy I don't have the time to cook. 
but I still want delicious, healthy, gourmet meals. Enter Factor. Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals are always fresh and never frozen. Each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. I eat the flexitarian and protein-rich meals, and with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. Last night, I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon, and it was quick and amazing. And if you want more than meals, there are over 60 add-ons, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and smoothies to help you stay fueled and feel good all day. And if you're like me, and you're always looking for gourmet options, you can try meals that feature premium ingredients, like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. Customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. You can always pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. So what are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash murderhouse50 and use code murderhouse50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's murderhouse50 at factormeals.com slash murderhouse50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. 24 hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a conman. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery and I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. Hi, this is Amy and Vanessa from She Goes By Jane, where we shine light on the stories of missing and unidentified women. On November 7th, we're sharing Nahida's story for the first time in a podcast. And this is a story that I thought I knew. 
but after reading police reports, it became more complicated than I thought. When investigators are called to Nahida Khatib's house, everything looks fine. Her purse is on the kitchen table, her cup of coffee is on the counter, and her two-year-old niece is in her playpen. The only thing amiss? Nahida is missing. Every week, we feature a poem written in honor of the person we're talking about. This week, we're joined by one of our favorite actresses. You might know her from Sister Act or King of the Hill or The Descendants. But if you're like us, you'll know her from Hocus Pocus. She's the much-beloved Kathy Najimy. Join us November 7th to hear Nahida's story. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found.